Welcome to First Presbyterian Church in North Palm Beach, Florida. We exist to help people pursue and share gospel-driven lives. We hope whether you're investigating faith, a seasoned follower of Jesus, and anywhere in between, this podcast helps you connect with Jesus. Gracious Father, may your word be our rule your spirit, our teacher, and the glory of your son, Jesus Christ, our single concern, in whose name we pray, amen. Friends, listen to the book that we love now from Galatians chapter six. My friends, if anyone is detected in a transgression, you who have received the spirit should restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness. Take care that you yourselves are not also tempted. Bear one another's burdens, and in this way, you will fulfill the law of Christ. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. In the writer John Steinbeck's sprawling masterpiece, East of Eden, he tells the story of the Trask family. As he recounts several generations of the Trask family's life, he depicts in particular the lives of two brothers named Charles and Adam. And they couldn't be more different from one another. Charles is a hard man, he's pragmatic, he's a man of few words, And Adam, by contrast, is thoughtful and warm and compassionate. There's a particular point in their story in which there's a a dark, violent woman named Kathy who is beaten to within an inch of her life in the next town down from where Charles and Adam share a house together by a man who has discovered that Kathy has been swindling him and stealing his money. He beats Kathy to within an inch of her life and she stumbles bloody and half conscious to Charles and Adam's front porch where she collapses and they find her there. And they, in turn, begin to argue over what they ought to do with her. Charles wants to just take this bloody stranger to the sheriff's office, leave her there and have done with it. But Adam, by contrast, wants to take her in and to mend her wounds. I want you to listen just for a moment to the argument that they have on their front steps as Kathy is laying before them half conscious. Adam went down the stairs, Steinbeck writes, and kneeled beside the figure. Give me a hand, he said to Charles. Come on, let's get her in. Here, look out for that arm, it looks broken. She fainted when they carried her inside. Put her in my bed, Adam said. Now, I think you better go for the doctor. Don't you think we'd better hitch up and Take her into the sheriff, said Charles. Move her? No, are you crazy? Maybe not as crazy as you. Think about it in a minute. For God's sake, think about what, Adam said. Two men living alone and they've got this in their house. Adam was shocked. You don't mean it. I mean it all right, Charles said. I think we better take her into the sheriff. It'll be all over the county in two hours. How do you know what she is? How'd she get here? What happened to her? Adam, you're taking an awful chance. Adam said coldly, if you don't go now, I'll go and leave you here. 
And Charles said, I think you're making a mistake. I'll go, but I tell you, we'll suffer for it. I'll do the suffering, said Adam. You go. This is a vivid moment of the choice over whether or not to be willing to enter into the messy business of bearing another's burdens. This is the command that we're reflecting on today. We have it in what we now call the book of Galatians. It was originally a letter written by Paul, who was an early Christian leader, to a church community in the city of Galatia. And to color in a bit of context so that you can understand the conversation that's happening and the words that we heard together, this is a church community that is rife with divisions and factions. There is, as best we can piece together, apparently one group in the church that they were thought, that thought that they were the really spiritual ones. In their case, they were people who were committed to keeping Jewish ceremonial law and dietary laws. And they would, in turn, smugly look down their noses at others that they didn't think had their act together like they did or didn't practice faith like they did. I know it's hard to imagine a church community ever doing this kind of thing, but believe me when I tell you that it happens out there. And so there's an irony when Paul writes to them and he tells them how, that they, how they can keep the law. Paul's being ironic here in verse 2. He's addressing people that think that they still needed to keep Jewish ceremonial laws and were hard at work doing that. And in essence, what he's saying to them is, you want to keep the law? Here's how you keep the law, quote unquote, of Jesus. You bear one another's burdens. That's how you keep the law. What we have in these words is a vivid picture of patient, persistent gospel compassion. The instructions that we have here in verse one of the scripture reading that we heard concerns someone who, in the words of the passage, is detected in a transgression. Well, that word can also be translated as somebody who is overtaken. It's written in the, in the passive voice in the language that this part of the Bible was originally written in. And it has the sense of picturing somebody who has been overtaken by their own weakness or the problems that they're facing in life. There's one translator who paraphrases this phrase, someone who's overtaken by the chances and changes of life. And Paul writes that for someone who's been overtaken by their own pain or problems or weakness, he says you ought to restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness. That word restore, in the language this part of the scriptures are written in, it's actually a word that comes from the medical world. In fact, in other places it's translated to cure someone. The picture here is that you and I are to have the same kind of kindness, sympathy, and commitment of nursing someone back to health that a physician has with a frightened child under her care. This is a picture of the kind of compassion that the gospel, the Jesus story, creates in someone. We we have the essence of of what compassion is in the very 
and the very structure of the word itself. Our, our word compassion in English is brought over from the, the Latin and it's two words that are attached together. The word cum, which means with, and the word passio, which means suffer. It literally means, in other words, to be willing to suffer with another. People who are shaped by the story of Jesus are people who are willing to dare to join each other in our mutual and inevitable suffering. To actually be willing to enter into one another's pain, problems, and weakness. When the good news of Jesus is at the center of a Christian community and the center of a Christian life, it produces a profound compassion, a deep and abiding patience. It makes you into the kind of person who will be willing to shoulder another's pain instead of just sneering at them or keeping them at arm's length. That's what Paul's picturing as he invites us to bear one another's burden. This picture of compassion, I think, is, is also helpful. I'll mention as an aside, for those of us who are here for whom you wouldn't call yourself a follower of Jesus, you're, you're, processing, you're processing the Christian story and, and trying to figure some of your questions out and such, I think that this picture of the kind of compassion that the story of Jesus creates in people, I think it's especially helpful to notice because I think it makes such deep sense of the instincts that are in your life. I say that because I, I know many of your stories. I know that there are many of you for whom you, you care deeply about the, the needs of the people that are around you. you. You spend yourself on behalf of other people. You've devoted yourself professionally or vocationally to a, a helping field of one kind or another. You teach kids even though you know you can make more money doing something else. And yet, you live inside a story of the world that says that ultimately it's, it's meaningless at the end of the day, whether you're compassionate or cruel, whether you're kind or whether you step on other people in life. Because all of life is just one cosmic accident. I remember listening to a friend wrestle through this as I had a, a hide a pint on a Thursday afternoon years ago with a man named Adam who had connected to the church community I was serving at the time. Adam was a young man who was a doctor and as he told me some of his story, he, he let me realize that he was somebody who came from a family that was fairly prominent and very wealthy. And yet, in contrast to the rest of his family members, he had chosen to practice medicine deliberately in a neighborhood adjacent to where our church was that was, that was, uh, that, that was deeply impoverished and frankly quite dangerous. He had chosen deliberately to make less money than he could make somewhere else to serve people that would be, for whom their cases would be more complicated and more demanding than some of the other choices that he could have made. And then as he was telling me this, he said this to me. He said, you know, I, I made these choices in life because I have, this, I have this powerful urge to want to help people. I want to help people with my life. I, I really care about, about bringing healing to people that are wounded, about, about offering care to people that are underprivileged. He said, but at the same time, I'm, I'm also an atheist. And so I wrestle with the fact that on the one hand, I have this powerful desire in me to, to extend help and compassion and care to people in, in a practical way. And on the other hand, I, 
I live with ultimate beliefs that tell me that none of this really matters at all anyway. And I don't know what to do with that. Friends, if that's you, what I want you to see is that the picture of compassion we have in these words, it makes sense of your life. It's an instinct that lives in you, not because it's some biochemical accident, but because you're made in the image of a God whose very heartbeat is compassion. You see, Christianity is good news about a burden-bearing God. Followers of Jesus are people who bear each other's burdens because God bears our burdens. There's a German church leader and theologian named Dietrich Bonhoeffer, and I'm obliged because we've got Alex here and we already sang some German to quote somebody from Germany, so I'm fulfilling that obligation here. Uh, there's a theologian named Dietrich Bonhoeffer who, who writes about this dynamic in the Christian community one place in his writings, and he says this, he says, the work of burden bearing expresses the whole work of Jesus Christ. In other words, Jesus living and dying and rising is God Almighty among us in person bearing our burdens. Think about the invitation of Jesus in Matthew 11, when he says, come to me, all you who are weary and carrying heavy burdens, I'll give you rest. Think about the way that the ancient prophet Isaiah pictures what God is doing in the world in Jesus, pictures the way in which Jesus would shoulder our sorrow and sin. When he writes, surely he has borne our infirmities and carried our diseases. He was wounded for our transgressions. And upon him was the punishment that made us whole. By his bruises were healed. See, friends, Jesus giving himself to be nailed to the wood of a Roman cross and then descending all the way down into death is, is him bearing our sorrow and sin when we couldn't. Jesus is God Almighty saying to you and to me and to the whole world, I'll do the suffering. I'll do the suffering. And so, if your life is marked by the grace of Jesus' cross, you become the kind of person that does that in turn with the people around you. Here's how Bonhoeffer says it. It is the fellowship of the cross to experience the burden of another. To bear the burden of another person means involvement with the created reality of the other. To accept and affirm it. And in bearing with it, to break through to the point where we take joy in it. The signature example that we have in the scriptures of what it looks like in practical terms to shoulder the burden of another is a haunting story that Jesus tells us that we have in the Gospel of Luke that we often call the parable of the Good Samaritan. And we're gonna, we're gonna listen together to that story to reflect on what it means for you and I in our own lives to follow Jesus in bearing each other's burdens. In Luke 10, if you're not familiar, Jesus is being quizzed by a religious professional who's trying to trap him in a gotcha moment about who exactly 
he has to care about or love, who his neighbors really are that, that he's responsible to care about and then who he can forget about. And in response to being asked, who really is my neighbor, Jesus? Jesus tells this haunting story. This is what he says. He says, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he fell into the hands of robbers who stripped him, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. Now, by chance, a priest was going down that road. And when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So, likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, while traveling, came near him. And when he saw him, he was moved with pity. He went to him and bandaged his wounds having poured oil and wine on them. Then he put him on his own animal, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day, he took out two denarii, gave them to the innkeeper, and said to him, take care of him, and I will pay you whatever more you spend when I come back. This, according to Jesus, is what it looks like to bear the burden of another. So I want to help you notice what that looks like. First, notice... Notice that the three figures all see that bloody pile of a person lying in the sand very differently. Jesus tells us that each person sees that unnamed figure in the dirt. But where the first two people, the good Bible-believing church folk, they see an inconvenience or a nuisance or maybe even a dangerous stranger to be avoided. The Samaritan sees somebody in desperate need. This is how burden bearing begins. It begins when you and I come to see the people around us differently. When we see the problems and pain and complications of the people around us and we don't see inconveniences or nuisances or people that have upset our schedule, but we see people that need care, people that need help. So maybe, maybe you could ask yourself as we go from worship this morning, how you might begin to see people differently who God puts around you this week. Second, the Good Samaritan comes to share in the pain and suffering of this unnamed stranger that he discovers on the road. There's a little bit of slapstick irony in the story that Jesus tells here. This robe would have been familiar to all of the people who first heard this story. It was a road that was, that was such a high crime place. It was infamous for having, having robbers and people who'd mug you and take your, take your clothing and your money and such hidden in the hills and crags around the road that it was nicknamed the Bloody Way in the first century. And it wasn't a road that's like the roads that we have that are lanes wide or a walking path around a lake or something like that. The road was cut in the middle between crags of mountainside. And so when Jesus tells us that the priest and the Levite, that they, they see this person and then pass by on the other side, that doesn't just mean that they wait for the traffic light to change and then cross to the other side of the street. They would have had to pass by, have climbed a craggy mountainside and then gone around and then back down. Jesus is picturing these people seeing this person and then being so determined to not help that they're willing to climb a mountain to get around having to be near them. 
And then he contrasts that with the figure of the Good Samaritan who comes near to this person, bandages their wounds, and puts them on their own animal. Who's willing to actually share in their pain. Friends, this is what we're invited to do with each other as a community. This is why we're, this is why we're doing small groups as a community, for example. We, we all need people to walk with us and be willing to shoulder our burdens, our pain, our own weaknesses. I need that, and I think you do too. And this is the, this is the kind of relationships that Jesus invites us into. I know the power of this in my own life. This past week, I had, I had one of my brothers who lives in Pennsylvania come into town and had the chance to spend a bit of time with my two brothers and my father. And some of you who know my story know that I lost my, my mom to a, ba- a battle with cancer after my freshman year of college. And as the four of us were together, my father and my two brothers and I, we were reflecting on that time. And, and each, of us, each of us talked about the reality in different ways that if not for other people being willing to bear our burdens with us, not, none of us would probably be here today. If not for people willing to say, I'm going to help with that medical bill, or I'm going I'm to bring you a meal, or you need somebody to come over just so that you can, so that you can cry or scream or swear for a while, I'm going to do that. I'll be over in a little bit. If not for people willing to do that, I would not be here right now. And what I suspect is that you need people like that in your life, too. This is what we do together as a community. We come to share in another's suffering. Third, we see the Good Samaritan willing to spend himself on behalf of the bloody stranger in front of him. He he allows his schedule to be disrupted, spends his time, he spends his energy, and he spends his own money. And This is what happens for us as well, too, as we bear each other's burdens. Bearing another person's burden is disruptive. It's inconvenient. It's costly. And it is pure joy. So maybe maybe you ought to reflect on who around you God might be inviting you to spend a bit of time, the time on your calendar with this week. Spend a bit of your resources seeking to serve. Spend a bit of your life coming near to. Because when we do this together, we are a picture of the burden-bearing, suffering love of God in Jesus. If you've read East of Eden, you know that that moment when Adam Trask gazes down at the bloody pile of a person on his porch and says, I'll do the suffering... It foreshadows what's to come for him. He suffers in ways for his willingness to take care of this woman who's just barely alive. He suffers in ways for doing that that he couldn't have imagined. He nurses this woman, Kathy, back to health, and she, in turn, dupes Adam into marrying her. She sleeps with his brother, Charles, and gets pregnant by him, lies to Adam and tells him that the babies are his. She runs away from him later on, and when he tries to go after his wife and the mother of his kids, she shoots him for it and nearly, nearly kills him. Adam suffers in ways that he would never have imagined, 
But as the story goes on, his good winds up overcoming her darkness. His willingness to suffer for the pain of another winds up overcoming her inner evil. My friends, this is just what God does for us in Jesus. God knows our darkness and bruises and wrong full well. The cross is God saying to us, nevertheless, I'll do the suffering. Friends, good news is that Jesus has borne your burdens. So may you in turn bear one another's. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thanks for joining us at FPC. For more info and to connect with us, check out www.firstpresnpb.org.